But I want to welcome the legendary fashion icon all the way from Harlem joining me here on the show for Sports and Hip Hop with DJ Mad Max, Slide 365, iHeartRadio. You can ask Dapper Dan. I was a man back in 88. Every other week, trick 30 grand. <laughs> Dapper Dan is joining me here on the show. Dapper Dan, how's it going, man? Everything is going good, man. Everything is great, man. Everything yes. is great. Speaking yeah. of Fat Joe, you knew Fat Joe from the way beginning. So like man, from the sandwich shop, and he always used to come in. He was like a dictionary of hip-hop, I heard. Yes, Fat Joe was a dictionary. I learned more from that. Fat Joe is my introduction to what hip-hop was all the way up, was all about and during the golden ages, man. You know, I used to love just listening to him, man. He'd break it down. He'd come in the store laying it down right away, man. Yeah, Joe is a walking dictionary, man, to the golden age of hip-hop. Don't nobody doubt that. I can confess to that. He definitely was the man, 100%. <laughs> yeah. but some other people that you want to style throughout your career, I know Michael Jackson, of course. Biggie Smalls is one, and it's the 50 years of hip-hop this year. And I know you, once you started hearing hip-hop back in the day, you knew it was going to explode. But was there a certain artist, especially one that you were styling, that you knew that hip-hop, oh, this is going to be big, and eventually become the number one genre in music? I think that uh, what really brought it all together when I realized that this was going to be um, bigger than what anybody could have could imagine was the contrast between um, Boogie Down production and the messaging that they was putting out and Eric B and Rakim I say uh oh they got two powerful components you know I say you got one that's speaking about social issues and the other one speaking about the real grit of what the street is like and adding that like 5% of stuff to it, it was just amazing, you know? Mm -hmm. It had to go somewhere. I saw, I saw what was happening all over again. I got flashbacks when that hit me to, because um, I grew up doing the, what we call the rock and roll sweetheart era, where everybody was singing love songs, and then bam, Marvin Gaye came with what's going on. So when I saw this two contrast, Eric B and Rakim, Boogie Down Production, I say, yeah, you know, I saw them. I saw that shift and um, that cultural shift that we needed and that was going to be really receptive to the culture. Yes. Yeah. And we've seen it blow up. And you actually saw Biggie when you were in the underground, I believe, in Virginia. Yeah, I saw him in, in Norfolk, Virginia. I went there and Bismarck, I went there and Bismarck invited me to this club where he was DJing. And Biggie was sitting there because I was all away in the underground when he emerged. And that was my first encounter with him. In fact, my first and only encounter with him, because after that, you know, I went deep underground because I was like hitting all the cities. I, uh, how I ended up in Norfolk, Virginia is like the brands had ran me underground. So I would go from New York to Atlanta, hitting all the, you know, all the major cities where they had like a lot of minorities at going south. And then I would do the same thing going west, hit all the major cities from uh, New York to Chicago. That's it. It, yeah, and so that's where in Norfolk is where I ran into Biggie at. Real cool, real smooth. I say, God, this, he was an old soul for real, man. Yeah, like, you know, my generation loved uh, Biggie because he was the stuff he was drop dropping. We didn't even we we never imagined a young guy knowing that much. No, one one of the greatest to ever do it, and people could always say the greatest rapper of all time died on March 9th, as Cannabis once said. 
100% official. But I want to get into your history because you're just one of the staples in fashion and even in hip-hop, just based off of the lyrics and just what you've done for hip-hop artists and styling-wise. But I want to take it back to the early days in Harlem because you were a skilled gambler and you were reading books on John Scotty. Oh, yeah. The best. Let me tell you something. After all the old heads in Harlem that, that turned me out to the street hustles and all the different ways to make hustles, to hustle in Harlem, um, I exhausted all the best hustlers. You know, when you hear me talk about Joe Jackson, that was the height of what you could learn in the street. There was nobody hiding him. And I had already mastered everything. You know, I said, I got to go get books now. Now, John Scani, John Scani was the advisor to the United States government for the gambling casinos. Wow. You know, everywhere. So John Scani, and not only that, but John Scani had a lot of that street thing because he was a, a crap hustler and a card hustler himself. And his books is that they just took me over the top. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They took you over the top. And, and you were around these guys, and it wasn't much so the gangsters. It was the bootleggers and racketeers. Yeah, it was bootleggers and racketeers. Yeah. That's the difference between gangsterism you know, and racketeers, because that's the age I grew up in. So what separated the two ages was the influx and the uh, of the drug games, you know? Uh, the, the, that kind of like snuck in on everybody. Because what you have to remember, a lot of people don't realize that heroin was not going to like dominate the way crack did. Heroin was gonna not gonna do that because the hustlers, the strong hustlers, had avoided that. They didn't get involved in that. Because you know, it's it's the main hustlers in the street that generate um how the street is gonna be receptive to culture. So and uh, before the heroin epidemic because I grew up in the last generation that didn't see uh, a drug epidemic. It, it didn't happen until the 60s. And I grew up, my, my formidable years was like in the 50s. So right after the number game was king in Harlem, then the heroin game became king in Harlem. But we still had a strong street presence for guys like myself. You know, so... We maintained a sense of equilibrium in the streets of Harlem mm-hmm. because the guys my age hadn't fallen prey to it yet, you know? So still guys who could pass down information to the generation behind that. What erased that was, was the uh, cocaine, the crack epidemic. Now, this is very important. Let me tell you the difference, right? Mm-hmm. During... The heroin, like the smarter, all the hustlers avoided that. Just the weak ones got caught up. But even the strong ones, like socially, were sniffing cocaine. It was a social drug, you know? So, but what happened was when they started cooking it, that caught the rest of them. (laughs) Yeah, it caught the rest of them. So that wiped out a whole generation, wiped out my whole generation. So it was only me and a handful of us. And the kids, the generation didn't have nobody on my level on that they could respect. So that killed the culture in Harlem. That 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 had a devastating effect on the culture in Harlem. 
And I, I bet you that your experience, because I heard when you ended up in jail that when you were in the bullpen, they said, did you hear the knock on the door? That's the guy who snitched on you. And the guy that snitched on yeah. you was actually the one who taught you how to hustle. That's the one. Who, yeah. John Statton. Everybody on Madison Avenue in Harlem by the Lincoln Projects know him. He was like a legendary uh, drug dealer. And he was older than that. He was older than my oldest brother. I'm the youngest of four boys. And he taught us how to hustle. And when I got that knock on the door, when they, they locked up me and all my brothers, <laughs> and we in the bullpen, and they called me out the bullpen like I'm 19, 18 at the time. They called me out the bullpen, and I heard a knock on the door. And they say, they ain't. They just put me back in the bullpen. I asked my brothers what happened. They say the snitch, the guy who told us on the other side of the door. <laughs> I told my, my brothers, that's it for me. You know, that that's was it for me. you. you, you, that, you was too easy. that was too easy. And then I went through uh, a metamorphosis and uh, I went through whole spiritual transitions. And I said, after that, I would never sell drugs or do some or be involved with those things. That's going to hurt my community like that. So, mm -hmm. uh, Right after that, I went back to school, you you know, and then I uh, stayed in school a while, went to Africa. I went through the whole transition after that. Yeah. 40 Acres and a Mule, because yeah. this is when you were in your journalism stage. Describe to me how you feel about the gentrification, what's going on in Brooklyn and New York today compared to that article going all the way back, because you were the person to really warn everyone it's coming because you took the city prototype of this, the city building that was on 125th Street and had it as a Trojan horse and said gentrification's coming. I told them, I told them in 1968, gentrification is coming to Harlem, right? But an article that people missed is like when I came out of the, that whole drug situation uh, and I went to, uh, I said, I had to find out, let's, let's start there. I had to find out first, how did I get involved in that? How did I get caught up in that whole drug culture thing? And at the time, I didn't realize it wasn't even that long. It was like 15 months, you know, and it took me like 30 years to get some of my friends back. But anyway, how did that come out of that? I said, I needed to find out why that happened to me. So I started, you know, reading books. I went to uh, County Cullen, you know, which is the Schomburg now, part of Schomburg now. And I said, I'm going to find out where this drug thing came from. And then when I ran up on the opium wars that China, you know what I mean? The Boxer Rebellion, where whole they had China on lockdown with drugs. The European nations mm -hmm. had China on lockdown. They turned China into a massive dope fiend country. And when China kicked them out, I said, oh, this is where it come from. You know what I'm saying? From that point on. And I wrote about that in 40 Acres in the Mule. And 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 it's in my book. It's called The Curse. Mm. You know? Drugs has always been the curse, you know? So anyway, Coming out of that day, I started talking about uh, a lot of political things. And I had read, um, I was uh, like maybe 14, 15, and I read uh, something by Constance Baker Motley, who uh, at the time she was working for the Urban League, and she did a study, Urban Renewal Negro Removal. I said, if I ever get me some money, I'm going to buy me a brownstone in Harlem. So 1968, now I'm teenager, you know, I'm crap hustling and all of that there. So I started studying the real estate situation, and I told them when that state building was being built in Harlem, I said that was going to be the Trojan horse that ushered in the age of, you know, gentrification. But no, I couldn't get the hustlers to listen to me. I couldn't get the rappers to listen to me. 
you know, uh, I couldn't get middle class blacks to listen to me. And um, so many uh the middle class uh Latinos moved out, the middle class people of color moved out, I mean uh uh African Americans moved out. So Harlem went down. We lost we lost a brain thrust because of that. But you mentioned your spiritual journey, and that's important that you just mentioned your spiritual journey that that was happening, especially when you went to Africa, because this is when it all came into place. And you had your other experiences while overseas, too. I think you got your your passport was stolen and taken away and people from the FBI were following you around. CIA. CIA. It was the CIA. Yeah. Um, It was crazy because when the Pan American Airlines donated the tickets, the tickets for us to travel to Africa. Right. Mm hmm. But the United States government found out that we were a bunch of young radicals when they started noticing what we was writing about in the paper. Mm-hmm. Because I did an article in the paper on on, on Martin Luther King. And why? Because people was calling Martin Luther King uh, Uncle Tom there. And I did a big article on, on why they call uh, Martin Luther King Uncle Tom. But remember now, we're writing about things I couldn't say. Now, Martin Luther King was all right. He didn't have it really serious problems except for the marches and stuff until he started speaking out about the war in Vietnam. Then all of a sudden he ended up dead. So I wrote about that. Then Malcolm didn't come under that super pressure till he started talking about not civil rights, but human rights. You know what I mean? Going before the United the, Nations. United Nations. So I say, wow, this got to be more than coincidence that as soon as the Martin Luther King started talking about Anything that's a world issue, the war in Vietnam, he gets killed. Malcolm started talking about taking America on, on to the UN under the world court. He gets killed, right? We go to Africa. We get to the airport. All our can- the Pan American Airlines that was donated tickets cancel all our reservations. A black, some black, I never found out who it was, but some black uh, person with a lot of money donated it and guaranteed the money so we was able to go to Africa. As soon as we touched down, our passports disappear. <laughs> you know, we, we, we ended up, I guess there was uh, fact-checking them, we ended up in uh, the American consulate in Ghana, and all our passports turned up there. So it was a bunch of stuff going on. We didn't find out till later on that uh, we was under surveillance uh, by the uh, CIA. One of the main reasons is because when we was, in, we was going to a seven-nation tour, and one of the places that we was going to be dropped off at and stay was Kurosini International School in Tanzania, right? Now, remember, they were still apartheid in South Africa. So the school that we were staying at in Tanzania were training young people to fight in South Africa. So we got to see a lot of revolutionists. All our trip was based on, we didn't just stay in no hotels. We uh, lived with families, you know, and um, it was a lot of radical things going on. It was an amazing time to be in Africa. We was in Ghana uh, just like six or eight months after they disposed of Kwame Nkrumah, the father of Pan-Africanism. We left Ghana and went to uh, Nigeria when they was having the Nigerian revolution. So we saw that, you know, a civil war. So we saw that. After we left Nigeria, we went to Tanzania where the founding father, Nyeri, was there, 
when Neri was on some powerful stuff, Neri told the Asians, he said, y'all can't take no money out of this country. You know what I'm saying? All this money got to stay in there. So we're seeing a whole revolutionary fervor take place in Africa. We leave uh, Tanzania and go to Kenya. Jomo Kenyatta is president of Kenya. Jomo Kenyatta told the Asians, he said, listen, um, y'all can own these businesses, but you got to have an African partner. So we experienced all of this revolutionary stuff and this political stuff and our whole concept is there. But let me tell you what the big thing is, and I didn't get a chance to mention this in the book, but I want your audience to know. So in South Africa at the time, this is when I learned a lot about the political economics of slavery and how people control other people based on the economy. So now in South Africa, they still had apartheid, which means it was three-tiered. So at the bottom was the Africans. In the middle was the uh, Indians and some Asians, the Chinese. But the interesting thing was this, and I learned this in Kenya, was that Japanese in South Africa, because of the strength of their economy, were honorary whites. Wow. Everybody in the audience need to check that. They were honorary whites. Why? Because their, their economy at the time was so powerful, they couldn't treat them that way. So I said, well, economics plays a big role in the way nations interact with each other. You know, so that was, well, anyway, so I, I it was, there's a whole lot of other political things I learned. But um, let's talk about the main reason that I, I chose to go there. So writing for 40 Acres in a Mule, us young brothers, it was Latinos and African-Americans, we had a lot of anger, you know, because we were formulating our minds on not only on the situation here, but the situation as well in Africa. So we had different scholars coming through. And one of the scholars came through was Dr. Henry Clark, right? Mm -hmm. This is when I found out that I had what I would call like probably the most important transitional thinking in my life. Because one of the students from the uh, editorial board with myself asked Dr. Henry Clark, he says, if we were the first people on the planet, why is it that we are slaves today? Right? Hmm. We have all of the young guys on the paper and all the young guys in the street at the time, we associated everything with 400 years of slavery. And when Dr. Henry Clark answered that, he says, that's because of a transgression we made against ourselves before Europeans came into our life. Right? Before they even got to Africa. He said, that's what set us up. So at that point that I realized that slavery wasn't the primary cause of what it was happened to us. It was the effect 
of what happened in Africa that allowed us to be enslaved. So that's why I chose to go to Africa as opposed to taking a scholarship uh, to go to Columbia University. I said, I'd rather spend, you know, two and a half, three months in Africa, visiting all these countries and finding out what happened as opposed to going to Columbia University and finding out what they say. And Africa was also the place where you came upon fashion and you decided this is what you wanted to do. And you were able to start molding your own craft from there. <laughs> yeah, that was like, um, <clears throat> that was the second time I went back. The first time I was sponsored by the Urban League, right? But um, my journey wasn't over. So when Muhammad Ali fought at the Rumble in the Jungle, I said, well, I didn't get a chance to see uh, Nigeria, which is a place where a lot of the slaves, uh, my, you know, the people who I'm descended from come from. I said, now I get the opportunity to go back there. So I went back and I visited three countries. And it was there that the idea was born uh, that led me into the world of fashion. I didn't know then that that's what it would be, but that's how it, it evolved from that experience there. What happened was um, I went on a three-country tour. Like I was in um, Kinshasa, Zaire, and I left from there and went to Lagos, Nigeria. I left from Lagos, Nigeria and went to uh, Monrovia, Liberia, and that was the last lap. So I was already dapper down. I was dapped down when I hit the... You know what I'm saying? I was that down. So when I uh, got into uh, Monrovia, Liberia, I said, I want me some artifacts. You know? So I um, went down to the market to get some artifacts. And it, the uh, African guy who was selling the artifacts, he said, I told him I like these things here. You see here. You know, all these artifacts I'm saying? He said, uh, I like the clothes you want. Bing! I said, you want to trade? He said, yeah. So I ran up into the hotel, got all my luggage, and I came down, traded all my luggage for artifacts. If you see behind me, I'm going to try to You see that big painting behind me? Yes. Yes, that comes from that experience. And I got them all around my walls in my brownstones. I wish I could have time to show you them all. Wow. You know, and I traded all my clothes for artifacts and to have him make me some outfits. I didn't know at that moment what was being born was what I call blackenizing fashion or Africanizing fashion. So I had them take African fabrics, right? Mm -hmm. And I used it to make Harlem styles. So when I hit back, that was the, that was how I was getting down. And then and that stayed with me, you know, all while I was hustling because when I came back, I was still gambling, you know? I didn't, I walked away from the drug game, you know, I had just got out of the paper game. You know what the paper game is, right? You yeah. know what the paper game is? Checks and all of that mm -hmm. stuff. M my whole purpose, let me, I was a crook. Well, what we call ourselves, me and my friends, only a, a handful of us at the time, we call ourselves crooks who read books, you know? So, but we would never do anything that would harm our community because we was committed to that. We was all on a spiritual journey, but I was coming out of that. So anyway, uh, when I come back, I said, I got to find something to do because I don't, I don't, I don't want to be in the street. I don't want to be involved in gamblers. I don't want that. I don't want, I definitely ain't going into no, anything that has to do with drugs. I'm not, so I'm turned vegetarian and everything. So I said, you know what? I'm all open, but still. 
a boutique and catered to all the gangsters that know me because they I was already there but then I was fly. So they said, uh, you know, Dap, you know we shop with you. So now I open up the store, I'm selling clothes, like I'm selling um things, you know, luxury. Alligators, garments and fur garments and lizards and all uh, pepper pepper silks and all that. Uh, everything that I made was probably reflective of three stores that were popular at the time with Sammy Davis Jr. and, and, and Nat King Cole and Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin and with a rat pack. Because these jazz was like had filtered down into the street and all the hustlers had that style, a, a holdover from the jazz style. So I was doing catering and, you know, catering to all the gangsters that was influenced by, you know, the Rat Pack. And then one day, uh, somebody brought LL Cool J when he just started to the store, you know? And um, that's when that's when I started to see that hip hop was getting ready to displace um, the concept of fashion. You know, it, it, the ship was getting ready to take. But uh, it it probably wouldn't have happened if if um, the big gangster uh, who took over after Nicky Barnes, a guy named Jack Jackson, mm -hmm. you know, he, he snitched on Gene Gotti. Yeah, yeah, he told, yeah, he snitched on Gene Gotti, yeah, Gene Gotti, John Gotti's brother. Mm -hmm. When he took over and um, he came in the store with a Louis Vuitton pouch full of $100 bills, everybody would flock to the store when his car popped up, you know, and um, they saw him pulling all these $100 bills out of this Louis Vuitton pouch. They got all excited. They know he's a big dude. When he pulled up, he had the state-of-the-art uh, 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 Mercedes-Benz uh, sports with all souped up, you know? So anything that he had was going to be popular. Uh, Alpo and, you know, Alpo and all the young gangsters, all the young rappers who was coming into into their own wanted to be like him. But they couldn't come in the store when he was there, you know, so they were waiting. After he left, they would come in and say, yo, what Jack getting this and that? But anyway, Jack had this pouch. Logomania. Yeah, and that was the birth of Logomania. He had that pouch with the Louis Vuitton and symbols on. So I already been studying religion and spirituality and I knew the power of symbols. I said, man, they crazy about this pouch because of the symbols. I said, now if I can get everybody walking around looking like luggage, that would replace all those other things I was making, the makes, the furs, the leathers and all that. It became bigger and that was the birth of Logomania right there. It was. And I actually have some pictures here because I, you mentioned LL Cool J. I wanted to show to the, the audience mm -hmm. and just have you reminisce on that picture there. Hey, I'm going to share something with you that few people know. Mm -hmm. See that picture there? Mm -hmm. I'll show it again. Um, LL Cool J, uh, Alexander Michelle, right? The lead designer at the time for Gucci, you know, mm -hmm. he just recently like departed. He told me when he came to Harlem, he said he saw me in a picture with LL Cool J and he saw me with a suit on. You know, I was poor coming up, so, you know, I couldn't wait to get a suit. He said he saw me with a suit on, right? And he saw LL Cool J with my garments on and he saw these two visions. 
And he said, wow, in America, you can do that. You can have that, you know, different variations of style. And he said, that's what influenced him. He said, and that was inspired him because at the time, he said at the time I was growing up, he was growing up in Italy. He was uh, gay and it wasn't open, to be openly gay wasn't, didn't have that uh, same effect where you could gravitate towards the type top like we were doing here, you know? So it was a whole big thing for him. He he broke that down when he came to Harlem. I got pictures of him calling him, you know, walking from my brownstone to the Apollo Theater and all of that. There was it's, uh, That'll all be out in my next book anyway. Oh, wow. You have another book on the way. Congratulations on that. I'm looking forward to, to seeing, to reading that. And I actually have another picture here of you and your shop back in the day, the boutique. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's that. Oh, you want me to talk about that? Yes, that would be amazing. Now, now, look, look look at the back and you'll see what I'm talking about. In that picture, you'll see a jacket with the... Uh, Jungle Brothers. The Jungle Brothers. You'll see Boogie Down Production. And you'll see another jacket with the car symbols on it, right? Mm-hmm. Right? And then you see me with the, Louis, with, the, with the Gucci on. And then one of my tailors on, he got on a Fendi. And we're measuring a lady for another kind of jacket. But this is, this is, this is how I stayed relevant. That picture right there defines how I stayed relevant. Mm. You hear me say, I don't dictate fashion, I translate culture. Those three pieces that you see right there are indicative of what I was talking about. Them four with, with me and the Gucci jacket, right? So when Boogie Down Production came, they said they was rapping about, you know, uh, Jamaican rap. So I said, okay, I'm going to make your jackets all up and dress y'all up Jamaican style. That's why you see them coats made in Jamaican colors. Then you see the red, green, and black. That's Jungle Brothers. Jungle Brothers come say, we on some Afrocentric stuff. So I made all their outfits up in red, green, and black. Now, the, the front uh, the front jacket that you see, that mm-hmm. symbol on the back, is the Alfa Romeo. So now, and I'm catering to hustlers, right? Mm-hmm. And guess it. Like, a lot of guys ain't got that strong rap where they can cop a chick straight off the street. So what they want to do is they want to ride around in their car, chicks see them in their car, they know they're coming off, so they don't have to have no rap game. They don't even have to be really good dancers, you know? They got that car. But when they get into the club, chicks don't know what they're riding. You know? <laughs> so I said, you know what? I'm going to start making jackets so when they go in the club, the chicks know what they got parked outside, you know? <laughs> <laughs> So that's why you see that. And Alfa Romeo cars had just came out with this new style mm-hmm. car. And they, a lot of guys were driving Alfa Romeo. But I made BMW car, you know, jackets and other stuff. So I catered straight to the to the culture. And um, one of the things that I like to convey to the young guys is like, how I stayed relevant is, um, yes, the creativity come from me, but I tapped into where the culture was going. And then show them how to shape where they want to go. That's the key. Mm-hmm. And you've styled so many the great hip hop acts, Eric B and Rakim. We can go on and on. Salt and Pepper, Jay Z, the Fat Boys used to come in the crispy hundred dollar bills. You were close with Jam Master Jay. He used to come in the shop. Oh, that was oh man, that was Jam Master Jay. Between him and Fat Joe, I learned so much about hip hop. You know, Jam Master Jay was the first one, and he took me down to. Uh, what was it, Ching Chow, some some kind of studio where Chung King Studios, 
You know, that's my first time in the studio. Chung King Studios, he took me there, and we hung out. Man, we we, we talked a lot about the game. And I got through uh, Jam SJ, I got into the mind of what the rappers was about. You know, because Jam SJ was pure street. And um, one of the most exciting moments in my whole career was the day Jam Master J came in the store with the big fat uh, Adidas sneakers. He said, "Yo, Dap, look what look what Adidas just gave to me." I said, "Get out of here!" He said, "Yeah, try it on, man. Join way the ton, man. You know." But that was a pivotal point in in um, hip hop fashion, you know, because um, when they they put that record out, my Adidas that just changed the whole game. Yeah, and I still think that they still have the partnership with Adidas to this day. I think they still do. When I talked to Daryl DMC McDaniel's last year, he was telling me about that. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, they, deserve, they deserve to honor them. They should bring out that uh, that uh, medallion or how you ever you describe it, that gold sneaker uh, that they gave Jam SJ and and sell that because that would be a big hit, man. That's history right there. It, it it is history, and, and and more history is Mitch Green and Mike Tyson the fight in, in oh, your shop. <laughs> um, that was the greatest day for, and probably the most uh, infamous day in the whole history of Dapper Dan. Right there, that fight was the fight that changed the culture. That's the fight that had me eventually had to go on the ground because I was I was operating under the radar, you know, I just. Uh, this is before social media, you know what I mean? This was word of mouth things. And the reason I became popular because all the gangsters in Harlem used to come. So the gangsters in Harlem, they go to major events through, uh, all around the country. So when they see these other guys from these cities start seeing these Harlem dudes pop up with this all this Gucci and fancy stuff and Louis Vuitton and stuff, they start going to the stores and asking for it till they find out where it came from, you know? Then once they... Once the penitentiaries find out, the word spread like crazy. You know, listen, man, when I get out, I'm going to, you know, in all them cities, I, I'm, I'm going to Dabba Dan. And that's, in a way, that was my saving grace because so many gangsters from Harlem had generated so much exciting excitement in all these different cities that when I had to go underground, I could just hit these cities. And that's Chicago. For like 30 years, 30-something years, you know, just hitting them cities, going to them places. But that that fight... That fight called that. And um, the night of that fight, I was waiting for Mike Tyson to come back. I made him, this, I had just made him this jacket. And uh, don't believe the hype. He wanted it on the back, you know? He wanted that statement. He said, yeah, don't believe the hype. Because so much was going on in his life at the time. So I'm um, waiting for him to come back. It's 2.30 in the morning. So I say, man, I'm getting a little tired. Uh, I'm open 24 hours. I was open 24 hours a day. 365 days for 10 years straight. But I, I had my uh, nephew as the night manager. So I said, I'll leave him there. I'm going to get going home, get some rest. And then who pops up? Because he hanging out. He hangs out in the neighborhood, Mitch Green. And uh, he gets into this big conversation and lead to a fight. It starts inside the uh, uh, boutique and then goes out to the street. And he rips off the side mirror of Mike Tyson's. Uh, Rolls Royce and Mike Dexum, and then it's all history from there. <laughs> I know I'm starting to get rated back to back, and brands are saying, "Who the hell is a Dapper Dan?" You know, 
do you think that these brands, because especially Fendi, MCM, do you think that there were people in these companies that were already watching you and catching word and they just seized on the moment? I'm going to tell you what Alexandro told me. He said, I don't know why everybody's upset with me for appropriating Dapper Dan because I was paying homage. He said, but all those brands had Dapper Dan on their mood board, you know? So they was watching all along. They was just like, it was just a matter of time because the shift was inevitable because of the music shift. When the young European boys shifted over to hip hop, now during the rock and roll era, we didn't have a footprint, a fashion footprint. But during the hip hop era, we had a fashion footprint that I had created so that they could have a dual identity, not only the music, but the fashion. So when they saw the shift, when the young European boys who were wearing one horse on their shirt by Ralph Fulhamin, and they saw the hip hop artists with herds all over them, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I had a, a hip hop artist walking around with, with herds, you know? I had I had. A, Hip hop artists walking around with not just two F's, F's all over the place. Not with two G's, G's all over the place. You know, and so that's when the shift took place. Yeah. You, you go underground, as we mentioned before, you're going all the way to Chicago and, and hooking up, hooking up with all the, the cities. Yeah, all the cities. Yeah. yeah. What was the point that you came back up into the mainstream again? What was the moment that you were able to come back up from the underground? Um, what, what did that was um, Black Twitter. Mm, when you found I, out you I, had a voice. Never, I saw in 2000, I saw some of the stuff that Tom Ford did. I said, wow, he's doing all the stuff that I did. But I didn't pay any attention because I grew up in a generation where uh, people of color didn't get credit for what we did anyway. But now the shift just came because we didn't have social media, right? And wh- all we had at the time that um, my boutique was open was uh, Yo MTV Raps, right? And Ted Demi, an amazing, amazing dude. Ted Demi, young white boy. Ted Demi, he was the uh, producer of Yo MTV Rap. He would come to the store and say, "Yo, man, this, this." He was a homie for real. He come to the store. He say, "Dad, we filming, you know." And you look at all Yo MTV Rap's early editions. You see all the rappers with Dapper Dan stuff on. You know what changed that? When the brands raided me and put me on the ground, that was part one. Part two was when they went to Yo MTV and Ted Demi came to me and said, Dad, man, we got a problem. You know? I said, what's the problem? He says, the brands, I ain't going to call them out today. He said, the brands told me if they show anything by you, they're not going to advertise with us mm-hmm. or they're going to come at us, you know? And from that point on till today, you see blurs. I am the reason that Yo MTV and all the rest of them uh, programs start blowing out anything that was not originally by them, you know? So that was part two, you know? So part two, part one was the raids. Part two was the blank me out on Yo MTV, which was the platform at the time, right? And part three was the suits and all of that. So I had to go underground. But what brought me back was... Um, black Twitter, social media. Now I had a voice. So when they saw that uh, that jacket, that Diane Dixon, that mm-hmm. Gucci put on the runway, that changed the whole world. But 
You got to give credit to Marco Bazzari and Alexander Michelle. They said, listen, man, we paid homage to you. And we're going to show you how serious we are. We're going to do a partnership with him, and he can continue or go back to doing what he did originally in Harlem, in his own brownstone, you know, getting fabric and doing and creating from scratch. Because that's the key, you know, creating from scratch with the symbols is the key. Yeah. And that was major. And I know you received a lot of flack at that time, but it, it was well worth it. And you even said it, if you, in order to boycott, you have to move in from there. You don't just boycott and walk away and you have to get in. And that's, that's what you and, did. And, you fulfilled it. Yes. And um, it took, and has taken a while for people to understand it. Cause this generation, like I say, we wiped out a whole generation who could pass down information to let everybody know what this is about. They look, they, young people cut on the TV, they see boycotts, you know, they, they see uh, um, marches and they act like they don't understand what it's about. Boycotts and marches was about getting inside. So they, they must've, you know, they missed the memo on that one. You know, and so I had to remind them, I had to fight to make young people understand we got to be in those spaces to change those places. You do? Mm-hmm. And they, and you have, and you've made history. In addition to everything that you've accomplished throughout your career, I'm curious because you had other black brands cross colors when we look back on it for you, by you, FUBU. Do you ever see these brands making a comeback? Uh, I always equate what I'm about to say. I grew up swimming in the Harlem River. Some people have heard this story because I always use this story to express what happened. I grew up swimming in the Harlem River. We, Me and my friend, William Gonzalez, and a few other of us, you know, we grew up swimming in the Harlem River in our drawers. And in the Harlem River, you could walk down into the water or you could dive off the dock. We always like to dive off the dock but walk back in, you know, on the beachy part. But in order to do that, you have to understand the current. You did not want to swim in the Harlem River against the current because you didn't have no lifeguards. You know what I'm saying? Your life depended on it. So we used to take a popsicle and throw it into the water to see which way the current was going. You know? And that tells us when to dive in so that we can walk out. The brands, what I was doing, when you hear me describe the way I was making clothes, for the hip hop artists, you know, mm-hmm. they were determining the, the current of the culture. Now, the shift came when these brands of color, they didn't do that. They came out with one fixed idea and sat there without paying attention to the current. So if you don't pay attention to the current, you drown, you know? And so uh, the saying is, the river's there. The river is always there, huh? you know. But it's always moving. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So they these brands, they're still in the river, but they're floating away. You know, be because they didn't pay attention to the current, you know? Mm-hmm. And so they so they drowned. Can they come back? You know? You can never step twice in the same river because it's always moving. And that's the problem. 
That's right. You're exactly right about that. And and, and someone who's a, a big fan and supporter of yours, he, he was looking for you for two years. It goes by ASAP Ferg. He he you you mentored his father, and he's actually said in the past because I, I've heard him in interviews say that he would like to do do some designs for jerseys with you because he said imagine if Vince Carter was dunking in a Dapper Dan Gucci jersey and what that would have done. <laughs> right, 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 man. Um, it's it's a really important time. And I'm hoping people understand what needs to be done because the culture, the biggest catalyst that moves the culture is music and fashion, you know, and art, but music and fashion is, is the two major wheels, you know, that move the wagon. And when you look at myself, I had all the rappers. That was the reason why I was able to do what I did. When you look at Virgil, he had Kanye. When you look at Kanye, he had Kanye. You know what I'm saying? So it's always music and fashion. It's that combination. And I would love to see uh, myself, because I used to mentor his father, and I mentioned him now, ASAP for do these things. But um, it takes time and a lot of effort and I hope he can harness both both careers, but it would be amazing. And it's necessary, more necessary now than ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, D. Ferg used to mentor his father, of course. And, and speaking of the jerseys, because jerseys are such a big part of hip-hop, and I'm a big jersey guy, and I know you, you have a fascination with hoodies, and you've mastered to put the ascot on, and I know why you do that and your style with that. But when did you start to see jerseys really become a thing in, in the hip-hop culture? You know what? You just touched on a very important subject, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to talk about jerseys, and we're going to talk about hoodies. First, we're going to do the jerseys, right? So mm-hmm. like I told you earlier, I wanted to wear suits. I ain't never had the opportunity to wear suits. You know, like for my family, we were poor. So Goodwills was our Macy's. So, and all I ever had was hand-me-downs. So when I got, became mature, man, all I wanted to wear was suits. So what do I do when the, you know, when the, Jerseys hitting was real hot. We had guys, the you know, the regular brands was killing them with the jerseys up to three thousand dollars. The bootleggers was killing the killers. <laughs> you know, guys, literally, I knew bootleggers was buying homes with them jerseys, right? So, I I, I don't go to a lot of hip hop parties, but I went to a hip hop party in Fiftieth Street and Sixth Avenue. So I go in there and I got on a suit. Everybody in there, bar none has on a jersey. <laughs> People are walking up to me and asking, do I know where the bathroom is? <laughs> I felt like Mr. Rogers or somebody. <laughs> they walk up to me asking where the bathroom is. You know, uh, all kind of places. I said, oh, man, I never let this happen to me, right? So, so bust this. Dig this, right? Mm-hmm. Jay-Z comes out with a, a rap. And he says, you can't be grown and sexy with a jersey on. Man, my friends got so mad, they could not sell a jersey for $30. <laughs> he was getting 300 500 like They couldn't even sell the jersey for three for $30. I said, that's, now those are two pivotal points in, in fashion, hip-hop fashion. Jay-Z, when he said that, and... 
Jam Master J, Maya Adidas, and that was it. You know, and they was listening. But another big, another big uh, thing was like uh, with LL Cool J when he had on the Fubu hat. You know, mm-hmm. so that was. But the other two was big. But but you can't you can't dismiss uh, how Fubu was able to capitalize off Jay Z wearing that that hat. But the other two to shut them down like that. Jay Z shut him down, boy. <laughs> Jay Z shut them down, boy. I said I couldn't believe it, you know. And yeah. you know what? But you know what's funny about that, though? What's that? So dig this. You know, Fat Joe is my homie. Mm-hmm. You know, Jay Z is my homie. So they beefing, you know, rap beef. So Fat Joe goes in on Jay Z. So you know, Jay Z at the time the boutique is on. He used to come through with Big Daddy Kane. You know what I'm saying? Big Daddy Kane load down with the with the dap stuff. You know, I don't, and Jay was just starting out then, so he wasn't that heavy. You dig? But what's the name? Fat Joe was scraping it up them coins, boy. He was coming through, getting them Joe, getting them outfits. You dig? So Fat Joe says, goes in on Jay Z. Said, you you know what you know about so and so, this and that, dapper damn. So he dropped my name. As a way to get at Jay Z, because like Jay Z wasn't down doing the Golden Arrow with the, with the gear, but he was coming through with Big Daddy Kane. So Jay Z got a slap back, and Jay Z slapped back and said, "I don't need that, but then I got a G on, on my, my chest." chest. So a whole generation don't even understand what Jay, what Joe is talking about, because they wasn't there for the Golden Age. So I got young kids coming up to me saying, "Yo, Dap man, what's up with that? What Jay Z going on? You got beef with Jay Z?" So they don't know that I ain't got nothing to do with me. They say, you got beef with Jay-Z? Man, well, I don't care. Give me two of them Gucci jackets. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know? So it's, it's that whole thing. It's that whole big thing. That's you know? it, iconic right there. And, and something else that really made a major statement was when Salma Hayek contacted you and, and you made the dress for her at the Oscars and it was to make a statement and especially with what you said that you can make it from the corner all the way to the world and I actually have a picture here of the dress that she wore at the Oscars that I want to show to the audience. Selma Hyatt, let me tell you something man, Selma Hyatt, she is one of the most amazing people that I have ever met, you know, before, during and even after uh, you know, uh, fashion. And and when she came to the store, I was like, oh boy, because you know, she's married to Panon. I thought mm-hmm. this was going to be like a high up kind of thing, like super courteous and you know, you had to be on your P's and Q's and some W's with that. You know what I'm saying? She was so down to earth, man. She told her assistants, yo, y'all sit down in this corner. Me and Dapper Dan going to do this. She said, Dapper Dan, you know what? I want your logo on my behind. I want to make sure they see it. I could not believe it. My eyes got big as the bottom of a Coca-Cola bottle. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. <laughs> you know, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I said, oh, man. You know, she was so warm. And they had to convince her to put it on, to raise it up and put it on the back. And she and I sat down. You know, she hugged me. She, we act like we knew each other for the last 20 years, man. She is so human. You know, that was like, um, that was like a big deal. And I, and I, and I wrote a post about that there, man. I say, she, she has no idea because I have like followers in, in, in the favelas of Brazil that touched them. I have favela, uh, followers in, in Soweto, you know, 
in the shanty towns. And for her to come there and do that and wear Debbie Dan on her back, that's a big deal. Yeah, that was, a, that was a great experience. Yeah, and especially when you got the opportunity to style Conan on the show. Oh, Conan. Oh, yeah. Conan was there. Conan said, I couldn't believe it. I said, Conan, you come to Harlem? You going to do that? He going <laughs> to And dig this. Did you saw a swag walk? Yeah, I did yeah, see that. Conan's swag walk is, is the biggest thing since, 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 since Snoop Dogg. <laughs> <laughs> that little damn Snoop Dogg dude. <laughs> yeah. Conan is funny as hell, man. Yeah, that, that was the big deal, him coming to Harlem, man. You know? And, and, and um, doing his uh, swag walk and let me swag him out. For the Apollo Theater, yeah, big deal, man. That was a big deal. Huge. But but you have so much that you're working on with the Puma, Gap. What are you working on next? Because you've been able to translate the culture for so long. What, what are you working on next for this year, for 2023? I'm working on us. When I say I'm working on us, um, when people hear me talk about globalization and how people of color need to think global, but I mean that in every sense of the world, man. You know, um. The model for the United States on the you see it on the eagle on on the crest of of the American crest, the uh, the seal of America, e pluribus unum, right? And then when you look, when they was formulating, when we were formulating the Dapper collection at Gucci, you'll see that we had a medallion. And you see on the medallion, Gucci said, Well, what what words should we put on the medallion? I said, we should put e pluribus unum. And what a pluribus unum means out of many one. And one of the things I learned about traveling to Africa and seeing all the different colors and all the different cultures is that we all come from one. So fashion has always been a platform for me, not just to dress young bodies, but more so to dress young minds. And if I'm going to do that, if I'm going to play a role in society, I need for everybody to 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 contribute to this idea of e pluribus unum, but to take it back to where it started from. We all need to know, everybody in the world, we're all Africans, you know? And, and I like to talk about rivers, and the river never rises above its source. So we're all, you know, we're all from the same source. And the further we go back, the more connected we are. So that's why you see me um, and over, the, over the years, ever since 1968, I've been going back and forth to Africa because I know the answer lies there. It's the last chapter to humanity's bringing um, ourselves back together. So I tie my fashion into delivering a message like that. We're global now. Like mm -hmm. somebody sneezes in China and we drop dead in America. So that should let us know how important it is for us to have global a, a global narrative to to end a lot of things that's happening absolutely and congratulations on being the first black designer to receive the cfda lifetime achievement award yeah i think i think it'll be a while before a lot of people understand that because um i want everybody to look at that what i post today on my instagram account that that signals what the CFDA award is all about is like, I have, you know, one of the painful things, but one of the, I can't complain about when you come to my atelier, I have maybe 20 magazines, right? 
and I have them spread out on the floor. And only one of the magazines is by a black publication. And I'm on the front cover and I'm on the front cover, of a lot of magazines, but like we've been so oppressed as people of color that we can, we almost look past our own accomplishments. So the sad thing is that I've appeared in European magazines since 1987 and I didn't get recognized by black publications till two years ago, which was Ebony, you know? Wow. So, you know, I know it's hard for us to realize our contributions and we're still discovering them. But one thing about people who are devoted to the aesthetic value of culture, when they recognize who you are, they will say it. And that's what the CFDA award did. And that's what those early magazines did. And now people of color are coming into the consciousness of uh, my contribution and they're realizing it, but they're realizing it by way of European publications. And now, uh, through the different awards I'm giving. But what I hope is that young people understand, say, oh, this is why, you know? And so I'm talking about that there in my um, uh, my recent post and to show how, you know, I'm juxtaposing that against Picasso going into Africa and discovering the African mass and creating a culture uh, uh, and, and creating an art form based on that, triggering uh, a new movement in art and me taking European symbols and triggering a new movement in fashion. So I'm hoping they tie all that together. History, the meaning behind it, the fact that we have to look into ourselves and evolve and know when we are evolving because everybody's watching us, you know? So, Dapper Dan, a man made in Harlem, of course, you know, he really is. And we got the memoir in 2019, Sony Pictures deal with the biopic. What's the update on the movie? Oh, man, the movie, they're pressing me hard for the movie. So I, I got I to gotta finish signing. I mean, even as of yesterday, they're pressing me hard, you know, but I got to make sure that um, Steve, Lee Daniels is going to be directing. Wow, that's big. Congrats on that. Yeah, I, when Lee Daniels called, say, okay, we already signed things. When Lee Daniels said, we're ready to move, I'm going to move. We already, and uh, LeBron James's is, is company is the ones that's going to do the documentary on me, so we're going to do all that at the same time. But, um, and that's why, I, you know, I'm 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 using the pyramid form, right? So Lee Daniels and 20th Century Fox is going to do the scripted series. LeBron James' company is going to do the documentary. I got a partnership with... Uh, Jay-Z, a collaboration with Jay-Z and Puma. Well, so when you look at those uh, uh, three pivotal people who are involved, that says a, sends a big message to the culture and where we can go. So, yes, all of that's going to get done. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Dapper Dan, you're an icon, a legend, and you're continuing to do so many great things. I'm looking forward to the upcoming book that you have, everything else that you have on the way as far as collaborations, and you already are that monumental global brand in my mind. I've got two major collaborations coming, but I can't talk to them about them now. <laughs> so we'll talk, and I'll have more information for you next time. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Dapper Dan, it was an honor having you on the show here today. Man, thank you for having me, Mad Max. I appreciate you so much, man. You already know. Dapper Dan, take care. Thank you again. I look forward to speaking with you again. Okay. All right. Peace. Salute.